Hey guys, this is Tim Powell from the Minerals and Royalties Authority. I recently sat down with Troy Eckerd, CEO of Eckerd Land and Acquisition, who's backed by over a thousand different high net worth investors, giving him some unique insight on all the different economic factors and how they drive investor behavior, including interest rates, inflation, geopolitical events, access to debt, the stock market, and the banking sector. Let's jump into the episode and hear more of what Troy had to say. All right, Troy, uh, welcome back onto the podcast. It's been a few years. Uh, really enjoyed the first episode. You are, uh, you speak your mind and uh, <laughs> I enjoy that. And I think I- I've had a lot of comments about how candid you were in the first episode and how much value was extracted by those in the space who listened. So I appreciate you coming back on. The impetus of you coming back on was really, I text you, I said, hey, Troy, there's a lot of shit going on, banking crisis, inflation, interest rates are going haywire, geopolitical, you deal with high net worth individuals, and they have their hands in a lot of pots. I I would love to pick your brain and dial it back and how it relates to minerals. And you said, let's do it. So here we are. So I appreciate you coming back on. Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, one of the things that that I've probably had in my whole career is that I've always been super forward and direct what I think, which means I was excluded from golf outings and parties and, and dinners because I'm too open-minded, but I'm pushing almost 60 years old now. And, and kind of the way I look at it is it's not that I want to be rude or, or direct or, or too blunt is I don't think in this kind of chaotic world, we have time for niceties and we don't have time to dress the pig up. We got a lot of huge fundamental economic issues taking place tied to geopolitical tied to uh, all kinds of, of different economic events right now. And um, I see this as a category five hurricane that we're involved in. And most people don't know all we've seen is the outer band. We've not even seen the core of the storm yet. So for me, it's real critical. I love the fact you invited me on. I can cover you know the minerals, but I can also give you, we have well over a thousand high net worth investors that are with us and have been for three, four, five years or longer. And I consider that being reconnaissance from the front lines, what's going on in the front line of this economic battle. And it's great feedback and it surely tells you the accuracy of what's in the market right now. Phenomenal. So before we dive in, for those who don't know, very, very quick overview. They didn't listen to the first episode. Who is Eckerd Land Acquisition? Sure. You know, you've been an oilman for a very long time, but your foyer into minerals is relatively recent, right? Last four or five years. So just quick overview and, and then we'll jump into the macro stuff. Yeah, I can give it to everyone pretty simple. So I started off in 1985 as a licensed broker with FINRA, raising money from high net worth investors who wanted tax write-offs by drilling wells. I was a 20-year-old kid, didn't know which way a drill bit turned. Quickly realized that uh, this is my view. It's real easy to find money. It's incredibly hard to find good deals. Most people see it the other way around. Most people think they have a great deal and they can't find the money. Trust me, if you have a great deal, money's easy to find. So after going through that first four or five years, I then started my own brokerage firm and I raised a lot of capital for horizontal drilling in the Austin Chalk. It really well there. But as you move to the next 37 years of my career, the industry changed so much. I moved and migrated to what I thought would be a broader market representing high net worth investors who wanted direct ownership in oil and gas and the fossil fuel space. They wanted it not just for tax deduction, but they wanted it for the same reason all the big oil companies do, which is controlling reserves, controlling cash flow, being in an in industry that's got 100% demand by all consumers. And so 
the the mineral market I've been in since 1989. I've owned minerals since 1989, but to be in it in a position where you could actually aggregate private capital and make a significant impact really to me has only evolved in like the last seven, eight, nine years. And so I think that that my company who represents high net worth investors, we just figured out the right model to mix between mineral acquisitions and private high net worth investors appetite brought that together. And it really has created a, a, a perfect symphony of opportunity. And, and that's kind of what we do. We're a family run energy business. My son's the engineer. I've got a couple of son-in-laws running the company. So it's a family business and we treat our, our clients or investors as partners, not just as investors. And that really has worked out very well for us. Excellent. Let's jump in. So you were last on March, 2021. The world's kind of gone up and down and, and, and around uh, since then. I'm yeah. going to go through a couple of bullet points, just where we were in March, 2021. So gas, 262 and MCF. We still hadn't really seen the run up yet. You know, later yeah. in the year, yeah. it goes up to four to five bucks. And obviously 2022, it gets nuts and it goes around nine. But at this point, you and I are talking in 2021 and it's kind of been, you know, gas is hovering around two bucks, 262. Oh, great. You know, maybe it's at the peak, right? Oil, 62 bucks. We're finally climbing out of that $40 COVID low. Yep. So 60 is now real comfortable. You know, deals are starting to come back. People are starting to transact. It seems like this is a really comfortable place to do deals. Later that year, it runs up to 70, 80 bucks. You start to see some, some exits in the Permian and then runs up over 100 bucks in 2022. Inflation, March 2021, 2.6%. By the end of the year, it climbs up to 7 and it lives in between 7 and 9 all of 2022. So definitely when we talk about your investors and your partners, very relevant. Uh, and then the federal funds interest rates. I think what's a really interesting dynamic about where we're at today, they were essentially zero being artificially held down by the government. COVID had a big part to do with that. And then from January 22 to current, almost 5%. So when you look at a yield product like minerals and the risk-free rate is 5%, you know, and then debt is super expensive, it becomes interesting, right? It's an interesting combination to from an, building an investment portfolio. Now, over to you, kind of when you're looking at commodity prices, interest rates, debt, inflation, from where we were to where we are today and the roller coaster that was in between, and you guys are talking to your partners, what were those dialogues like and, and the concerns and you know, what, how they view the world over to you? Well, the, the, the one thing is that because I've been around for almost 40 years, I've seen so many cycles. I think there's an advantage to that because you don't get too excited when it moves up in commodity prices or activity, and you don't get too depressed when it goes down. Because what you realize is, is that the, the sharp ends of the ruler never stay for very long, right? Too much demand, gets killed with oversupply, vice versa, ends up affecting both supply and demand. So what we've done is we stuck with the same financial model since 2021. So we never went to the $100 oil, we never went to the $8 gas. All of our buying parameters for our assets were always based on $70 oil and $350 natural gas, not counting in the natural gas liquids. And the, the part is for your listeners is that what we essentially said is, is that these, these black swan events like a Russian war create the awareness that the, the shortage between supply and demand is like a 30-day supply chain. So you have any kind of geopolitical event, any disruption in supply, the whole world's living on a 30-day window. And so we looked at it as, thank you for an early Christmas. Thank you for all the money we made last year because of this uh, political event, but it wasn't going to last. And uh, with the amount of 
headwinds created by the increased climate control left-wingers, we know that every single tool they have is being applied against starving the oil and gas industry from capital, raising regulations on debt, preventing publicly traded equities to really truly do what they need to do, which is reinvest in the future and infrastructure and rigs and, and mobility. And for me, it was clear, stay the course, keep your playing field level, don't get excited about the ups, don't get depressed about the lows. And from 2021, it was about as clear as a bell where we were headed. And we're now trading about where we were at the beginning of 2021. We're $71 a barrel, $70 a barrel this afternoon, and 260 gas hasn't moved much, but what a heck of a great Christmas time we had last year. So we'll we'll take that big win for the year and add that up to just free money. But now we're back to essentially where our financial model has been for the last four years. So for Eckerd, we're just a long-term thinker. We're a long-term planner. We don't have any debt. Our partners pay cash. We pay cash. So we have no outside pressure on bank debt, covenants, any concerns about uh, backwardation and strip prices. We just don't care. We're cash buyers. That really helps us in our long-term planning. The run-up in inflation, you know, obviously minerals are very well positioned as you know a hedge on inflation. You know, you see anyone who is heavily invested in tech has pivoted and, and wants ownership in real assets. So walk me through, I'm sure you've onboarded in a thousand partners, you've onboarded some new ones in the last two years. Oh yeah. Were did a bunch of them come to you because of the inflation, or is that just an added benefit? Walk, walk me through from an how inflation plays into all this. I'm going to say this and be as respectful as I can. I'm going to tell you that 99 out of 100 investors, they may be high net worth, they may be 20, 30 years seasoned investors, have no clue how inflation works. None. They just don't. They don't even get it. So what created most of our activity was the awareness that mineral rights provide you a cash flowing asset with virtually no risk as far as like cash calls, capital calls, drilling environment. They said, I can be in the, in the energy space and I can be directly an owner in oil and gas with no risk other than the economic risk, right? Like do the minerals perform or not? That was a massive attraction to them. The other attraction to them was, was knowing that when you buy into minerals, um, if you pay cash for them, other than economic performance, there was not any outside third-party constraints other than just you know commodity prices, really. you know How many wells will they drill and what commodity prices are? So they liked the idea that all the rhetoric being thrown in the economy the last 18, 24 months was, was not really going to affect their minerals, just purely buying the right minerals with the right performance. That was key. Um, the inflation component, I, in my view right now, is I think we're not even seeing the true numbers of inflation because I've always said oil and gas is either the cause of inflation like in the 1970s, which because we had the oil embargo, because we had Saudi Arabia and OPEC trying to control the U.S. economy by withholding uh, oil through the embargo, causing us to have inflationary trends when it came to, to fuel, uh, it caused oil price to go up and it killed our economy, right, because of inflation. I think right now oil prices were not the cause of inflation, but in fact, they were a victim of inflation because we had this big boom with $5 trillion dumped into the stimulus, everybody ramped up, economy, I mean, you know, the whole nine yards. So, and then we've had a, an eight or nine month, probably longer than that. Now we're going on 10 months worth of interference in the true mark to market the value of fossil fuels because of the SPR barrels being released, because of policy changes, because of all the constraints. So we're looking at $71 oil, absent all that nonsense, you know, we probably would be, you know, 85 to $90 a barrel today, but more than likely the true uh, inflationary pattern that I see happening is in about six months, once this, this current push down on commodity prices, which is mainly driven by illiquidity, 
uh, when the true mark to market, then oil and gas will be actually the cause of much higher inflation into 2024 through 2026. I, I think we're not anywhere close to the bottom. I think inflation is going to be massively worse than it is today. And that's because in this current 12 months of inflation, energy has not been a factor. It's been suppressed. If you had allowed energy to do what it should do without throwing in all those barrels and all that influence, uh, we'd be running about 95 to $110 a barrel for oil and inflation would be 10 plus percent, which I think it really is. I think the numbers they put out are, are BS by about two to four percentage points. So to answer your question, anybody in direct ownership in oil and gas, working interest, producing wells, minerals, you just have to look past the next six or nine months because the, the backside of this is I, I really think we're in a super cycle for commodity prices, specifically for oil and gas over the next three to four years. And I don't think there's anything anybody can do about it. It's it's here, it's upon us, and I don't care how bad the recession is, commodities are going to be much higher as purely a result of, of lower supply and increased demand. It, we're gonna be the cause of inflation in the next 36 months. And I'm okay with that because we've had the hell beat out of us for five years, we're due a little bit of a windfall. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to all of our podcast sponsors. Over the past 20 years, Riverbend Energy Group has been the definitive leader in the non-op and mineral space, where they are actively acquiring minerals in the Delaware Basin, Midland Basin, the Williston, and the Eagleford. Following their $1.8 billion sale of their non-op platform in 2022, they are also back actively acquiring non-op interests in the Delaware Basin, Midland Basin, and Williston. If you have minerals or non-op working interests in these areas that you would like to sell, then please visit www.riverbendenergygroup.com for more information. As a leading global energy business advisory firm, Opportune is well positioned to provide world-class technical, financial, and operational capabilities to minerals and royalties companies. Whether it's back office outsourcing, resource and reserve definition, land due diligence and administration, GIS mapping, valuation work, data and system integration, financial reporting, tax advisory, or buy and sell side assistance, Opportune LLP has got you covered. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. Farmers National Company has oil and gas experts located across the country ready to provide you unmatched convenience and service for your land management needs. Whether you're looking for turnkey management of oil and gas interests or simply looking for an advisor to help you sell or lease your minerals, Farmers National Company has you covered. Learn more about Farmers National Company's team of certified mineral managers, landmen, attorneys, and accountants by going to fncenergy.com or reach out directly at energy at farmersnational.com. No, I, uh, I listened to one, you have a podcast. I listened to one of your episodes last night around your comments on inflation. You said CPI is, is a half truth on inflation. It doesn't bake in energy and it's bullshit. And I think it's a political tool to show Oh, inflation is is coming down because I I looked at it today and I apparently according to the charts and I think it's CPI driven inflation's down to like five or six percent now and and you're saying no the real the adjusted real inflation is over ten in your opinion I I think the best way to judge inflation is the grocery store so a year and a half ago you go to the grocery store moms had their baskets full of groceries and they had Gatorades hanging off the edge you know with the twelve packs and chips over the top you go to the grocery store now there's not a single basket full. There's no Gatorades on the side. The shelves don't have any meat on it. It's not because people are buying it. It's they can't get the meat from the processing plants to the shelf. So the true, the true reality is, is that the way they're calculating CPI these days and inflation, is that inflation's X, 5%, 6%, 5.5%. If you don't count food and energy, oh, so if I don't wipe my butt, drive my car and eat, it's not inflationary. 
Well, I, I have blue collar family members. They're teachers, they're retired teachers. And I've got them saying, I can't pay my bills. My electricity's up. Gas prices are up almost $1.50 from where they were a year and a half ago when Biden took office. So you're, you're not counting the fact that fuel costs are twice. You're not counting the fact propane. There's nothing I'm buying today, not a thing I buy today that was the same price it was 12 months ago. So how do you have 5%? Because it's not 5% higher. I mean, you can barely go get a, a two taco plate with my wife that's not 25 to $35. And the truth is, um, this is a significant broad spread inflation. Now, all of it ties back to fossil fuel. So if you think about it, the plastic uh, silverware you use when you order out for Uber Eats, the, the plastic, the car, the tires, they drive the fuel, this has all been suppressed. Well, they've run out of aces up their sleeve. They have nothing else they can throw at us. I heard today they're going to try to buy back 3 million barrels of oil. They just released 2.6 million barrels last week in the SPR, but they're going to buy back 3 million barrels. We have absolute idiots running this country. And the reality of it is, as soon as oil has this liquidity issue taken out of the market, we're going to see $90 to $110, $120 oil. There's nothing that can do, they can do to stop it, right? When that happens, then the syringe the doctor uses, the plastic gloves they use, the, the container, the plastic bags, the grocery store, every single thing that we all know is made from fossil fuels is going to be incrementally increasing. So your inflation today is at five and a half, whatever number they want to come up with. We're really running between a minimum of eight and a half to 10. And I would say across the board, including food and energy, we're still running 12 to 15% inflation. There's nothing that has been suppressed over the last four or five months. If you want to say, well, gasoline's down. Well, yeah, it was at $5 and 50 cents. Well, we're doing better at $3 and 15 cents. Idiots. We're still almost 90% higher than we were 18 months ago. That's still inflation. So I, I think from my standpoint, the comfort level for those interested in energy, energy, unfortunately, will be the cause of inflation to escalate much higher than it is today, like it did in the 70s. There's nothing anybody can do about it. And the reality of it is we're only at a lower price because of illiquidity. That's it. This is, this, is a not, this is a market condition. This is not an economic condition with oil price. Right? It's market driven, not economics. So dialing it back to a conversation with your investors, you're saying, OK, this is the economic backdrop and you're going to be exposed to this rising inflation. However, energy is going to be in a good place in the next one, two, three, four, five years. You might as well be along for that ride on the way up to counter that inflation because energy is going to, and commodities are going to be one of the things that benefit. Is that a, a fair statement? Yeah, I, I think the way I look at it, I, I like looking at historical economic events. So I've done a lot of work on looking at the 1970s and 80s. And the reality of it is, is that what we're seeing now is a almost complete replication to a certain degree of what we saw in the 70s. So if you went back and said, okay, let's pretend the 1970s are, are today, you know, 2023, what should I have done if I were an investor in, in 1973 to 1982 economic you know, uh, hysteria and, and inflation and recession. Well, what I should have done is said, what's going to be the outcome of a particular investment? In other words, we're headed into high inflation, higher than it is today. We know that we have a great deal more demand for fossil fuels than we're able to put out. The oil and gas industry has a cap on it, like a flea jumping in a jar. It's hitting its head because we can't get past 12.2 million barrels a day. And now we're laying down rigs left and right, which means it's going to go down in production and activation. So limited supply. We need, you know, seven to eight million barrels a day imported more than we produce. So it's clear we're going to be a net consumer versus a net exporter. And at the same time, you have banks being told not to lend money. Well, that's all fine and dandy, except for one main thing. And that is today, if I'm looking at the 1970s event, I want to own energy because it basically went from $350 a barrel to almost $12, $15 a barrel. is about a six times multiple above what the price was when the beginning of the recession and inflation started. Because at the end of the day, you know, I go look at 
tenderloin. I love tenderloin steak. I go look at tenderloin in the grocery store, right? You walk in there and it used to be tenderloin was the most expensive piece of meat and it was in two or three to a package. Now you can't find two or three to package. You can find no tenderloin because why? They're looking at the cheapest, easiest way to process beef and put it on the shelf. So inflation is going to be a factor of rising energy costs. And that meat packer is going to say, I can't afford to slaughter a thousand cows this month. I can only get 500 because the ranchers can't afford the feed and the fertilizer. So I'm going to charge more for the 500 I get than the thousand I used to get by breaking into small packages. Inflation is going to be driven by a supply derailment. Same thing is going to happen in oil and gas. We're going to produce less. They're going to have to pay us more. We don't have new rigs. We haven't built a rig in seven years. We don't have the crews. We don't have the team. Sand costs have gone up. Horsepower has gone up. When diesel rises, it's going to go up. So the truth is, this industry, oil and gas, we've done our job. Without any assistance from the government, any assistance from banking, this is the greatest industry on the planet because we're the most innovative, toughest SOBs you've ever found. And no matter how bad they chop our knees, we figured out how to produce 12.2 million barrels a day out of our own pockets. And now the reality is because we've had this suppressed oil price and now natural gas has settled into probably what it should have been absent the Russian war, we should have probably around 350. With that two pricing commodities, we'd probably still be at 700 rigs a day. We wouldn't have had record earnings last year. We'd had good earnings, but not record. And we'd be drilling at a normal pace. Well, instead we peaked. We have a lot of cash. Now we're paying the price for it because reduced commodity prices. And guess what? All the budgets are being revisited saying, we don't have the money we had last year. We're going to be cutting back, cutting back, cutting back. What's that going to do? It's going to lower supply. The demand is still increasing. And so whoever's in the position of looking forward 24 to 36 months will accumulate some of the best assets this year, next year they'll ever acquire. And they'll do it with knowing that, in my view, commodity prices are almost a given increase of 15 to 30% over the next 36 months. That's, that's my view on the market. So there's a lot of, off of what we've been talking about, there's a lot of ways to take it when you start talking about geopolitics. I want to start with the banking crisis because, you know, limited supply, limited access to, to debt from banks. That's been an ongoing theme. European banks, Canadian banks have been pulling back because of ESG. Now you have this new dynamic with, with SVB collapsing, and it's it's not a credit crisis like in 08, this is a liquidity crisis. And it seems to be fairly unique based on the bank. Nonetheless, it's going to lead to more regulation. It's going to lead to you know stricter lending. And I think it's going to be an excuse for a bank that has you know somewhat of a, a leftist contingency to, to its stakeholder base to say, oh, no, no, we can't do oil and gas anymore because of you know, SVB, right? So I think all in all, it just ends up, there's less money going to oil and gas as a result of all this. But the, you know, going again, I want to always tie it back to your, your partners, your thousand investors, this latest crisis this bank, these bank runs, or the threat of bank runs, how's it all affected everything? And how's that affect their investment strategy? Well, I'm going to slightly take a different view of what you said versus the way I see it. I don't think the uh, banks are going to be put on any more pressure not to lend to fossil fuels because of the liquidity crisis. I think it's worse than that. So the first three banks that have been taken over in the last 45 days, those three banks alone have three times, three times as much FDIC coverage and federal government bailout than all 300 plus banks did in 2008. Three times, but three banks, three times as much as 300 banks in 2008. This is not a miniature problem. The, the banking crisis has barely started and they're all hiding it. And the reason they're hiding it is when you watch the movie, The Big Short is they're moving their best customers into position to take the minimal amount of damage. And so they're leaving all the regular depositors 
subject to risk. They're pushing pressure. So in the, in the in 2008, the financial industry, FINRA, the financial regulatory firm for all broker dealers, did the same thing in 2009. They knew all the big firms had lost all their assets under management because the stock market went down by 50 plus percent. Everybody was caught up in Ponzi schemes and bad deals. So what they did, they came in and examined smaller brokerage firms, put so much regulatory pressure. I mean, there was like 1,500 to 2,000 firms that went out of business and all those dollars ran up and refilled the bigger broker dealers and brokerage firms assets under management because these firms went away. Well, you're seeing the same thing now in banking. So now the federal government says, if you're a big bank like SVB, we're going to bail you out way beyond the 250,000. So now what's happening is the the mid-regional banks are getting depleted of all their deposits because they're saying we're not covered. And then the local banks are starving because like us with our money, we said, we got to go. We did interviews with our banks four weeks ago and said, we want to know what your portfolio is. We want to make sure that we're diversified and not too much money is in any single bank. So when you have that happen, it's not about banking choice anymore. It's about which bank is least exposed to the disease of poor lending. This is a credit crisis. And how it's affecting my investors is, let's say I'm a manufacturer and I've got a $5 million line of credit at the bank. And the bank says, uh, you've been a customer for 10 years. You've been running off that line of credit to buy new materials, steel, et cetera, for your manufacturing plant. Well, the bank's looking at their lendable capital and they're saying, wait a minute, now I have Blackstone and I have all these real estate transactions that are showing the true mark-to-market value of my real estate portfolio as a bank is down 25 to 30%. They're not having to set aside capital because the feds are going to come in and say, you must reduce your portfolio by 25%, which means we're 100, 200, $400 million less in capital than we need. Plus our bank stock is down. So that's part of our capital. So what they're doing is they're going back in right now and they're cutting out lines of credit. They're saying you had a $5 million line of credit. Now you have two or you have one or you have none. So they're killing the business owners, the entrepreneurs by reducing the access to cash because they need that cash to cover these uh, distressed or, or soon to be stressed portfolios of real estate. And so the, the liquidity crisis is also affecting oil and gas. If I'm a trader and I need a billion barrels to deliver the Valero plant by the end of the month, I've had a $50, $100 million line of credit. Well, that's been depleted over the last four or five months of the credit crisis continues. And so all of a sudden now the bank says, you don't have 50 or $100 million line of credit. Now you have a $20 million line of credit because we need that extra $80 million back into our capital pool to cover these distressed real estates. So you have all these oil companies trying to sell oil and the traders don't have access to cash and they're trying to buy it at the last minute. That's why you see oil prices crash around the eighth of the month through about the 25th of the month. They crash. Nobody has the liquidity to buy those barrels and hold it from a trader's position because their lines of credits are drying up. So we have the same situation today happening with commodity prices that happened in 2008. Oil fell from 145 to about $35 a barrel. But after the credit crisis occurred, it took about 11 or 12 months and it kind of leveled off. Then the true economics set in and said, we still have this demand and we don't have but a very limited supply. We better go back and price it according to the market. So then oil ran back up to 90 to $110 a barrel. We're probably in the same exact position with liquidity being absent in the oil market. And that is what my investors are recognizing is, hey, my line of credit for my dental practice, my manufacturing has been cut off. Same things happen to the traders. So we're dealing with a liquidity crisis. And I believe the banking crisis will be five to 10 times worse than what it was in 2008. It's already three times more than the 300 banks. You're looking at five to 10 times worse for banking, big time. Really? Oh, yeah. It's, it's huge. It's, it's deep. I'm talking to my partners and they're talking about their lines of credits. 
being withdrawn. They're talking about, hey, I got this multifamily with an adjustable rate mortgage. I'm going to go back to my bank and I'll pay the higher interest rate. The bank's saying, no, no, we're not taking any new real estate loans. Well, yeah, but I've been a client for 10 years. We know that. We don't have any room in our portfolio. In fact, we're having to get rid of real estate to shore up our basis. So I appreciate your adjustable rate mortgage, that mortgage, but we're not taking any new real estate loans. So you have to go get your new loan somewhere else because we're not doing it. In this case, if I can't bank with a guy I've had a relationship for five or 10 years, I'm not taking risk. How can I go to a new bank who's not taking on any new people? It's going to cause more defaults, more foreclosures, because no bank is going to lend on brand new real estate. And we're in, we're just starting that cycle because most of these were two, three, four year adjustable rates. That really starts the last half of this year, all the way through 2025. It is catastrophic. That I've heard. I mean, commercial real estate is the next shoe to drop because- yeah, a lot of these leases are going to roll off now in the next six plus months. Yeah, New rates are going to set in. A lot of these leases are vacant because of people have been more accustomed to working at home. And it's really a, a perfect clusterfuck of folks having to just write down huge losses on the real estate side. And you're well, taking problem, a step further. Yeah. The problem, is, the problem is the appraisal value too, Tim. The problem is that if the, if the weakest guy sells at a lower price... Well, now the next bank on the loan has got to assume that the, that the same similar apartment complex or commercial building or office space is now at that price. So you have this perpetual downward pressure. So the bank now says your collateral is not worth what it was. Now let's talk about that in terms of oil and gas. So we know that a lot of the, the people that buy minerals are out there using leverage and bank financing, right? So now the bank says, do I, do I continue to lend to oil and gas, which is the riskiest asset class out there because it's so variable, right, based on reserves and decline curves of commodity price? Or do I shrink that $100 million line of credit and say you only have 25 or $50 million, or you guys need to put another 20 30% equity down? So instead of expanding the ability to buy minerals, it's actually shrinking, and there's going to be a lot of pressure on those current asset holders to pay down that debt because they already look at $71 oil and say backwardation, the prices are stripped going down, not up. Gas prices are down. There's no short-term view of, of a high rise in gas prices between now and the end of, of uh, 2023, unless we have a really bad winter prediction. So you now have pressure inside the energy space where those that have borrowed money are being looked at as saying, you need a lot more equity to pay it down or you got to go sell into the market, which should push down prices unless you're a cash buyer because they're going to have less buyers to, to buy those assets that have to be liquidated. So this is a major liquidity crisis across entrepreneurs, business owners, oil and gas companies that borrow money and pretty much anybody in this space that is required to go get conventional lending because they're all in a major retraction mode. Uh, we had my conference this weekend down in San Antonio. I had a, a bank expert come in and talk for an hour and a half. And essentially, he just laid it out and said, whatever credit you have, you better lock in, get as long as you can. It's not just what the interest rate is. It's going to be if you can Get the loan or keep the line of credit you have today. That's going to be more important. It's critical. Yeah, no, I, talking with folks about where the opportunity set lies in minerals for the next three years. And I think cash buyers, ultra high net worth and family officers in particular are extremely well positioned because yeah. if, yeah, you can't stretch your dollar anymore with the debt. It's too expensive if you can get it. But, yeah. and you're saying you're not going to be able to get it. So, you know, if you're buying, if you're buying PDP at, you know, PV 12 to 15, which is fairly good in the market, and your debt costs eight, 9%, good luck. If Right? That, that is the key. The, the key is now with most investors, like I said earlier, 99 out of, out of 100 don't get inflation. They're all like, hey, man, I'm going to hunker down. I'm going to go get a 4.7% 90-day CD. Well, you're losing 3 to 5% in inflation. So not only are you paying taxes on the 47 
you lost three to five percent in inflation. So your hundred thousand dollars is automatically worth ninety three thousand minus what you got paid minus the taxes. Oh, great. You only lost eight percent in value this year. They don't get it. So the way I look at it is if I'm an investor, I'm looking at where this I'm looking at by pure attrition of evidence, preponderance of the evidence. Where is the market going? The market is going to be narrow. It's going to be thin. Very few are going to follow the path and direction. And I want to be in energy. I want to own it directly. And I want to think about a five-year time horizon. I'm not worried about the next six months. I want to see where I'm going to be as far as commodity prices and demand in late 2024 through 2026. Those are going to be boomer years for commodity prices. But I got to, like a farmer, I got to go buy the seed today. I got to plow the crop today. And I have nothing to harvest. But most investors are so immediate in their need for response. Can I make a check in, in 30 days? Well, no. Can I make 10%? Well, no. Well, why not? Because those are all inflated BS because of the largest bull run in the, in the entire economy of the U.S. in the last 100 years. Nobody has a 13-year bull run. So you happen to be born at the right time. Congratulations. Party's over. Now you got to clean up the keg and the mess because the party's over. Hey, guys. I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to all of our podcast sponsors. Your property is your legacy, so you should only leave it in the hands of a land management company who has a legacy of its own. If you own oil and gas interests or act as a fiduciary for those who do, you can find a long-term partner at Farmers National Company, who since 1929 has taken great pride in helping clients maximize the benefits of property ownership by providing turnkey management services and by working alongside them through generational transfers of specialized assets such as oil and gas interests and farmland. To learn more, visit fncenergy.com or reach out directly at energy at farmersnational.com. Need energy industry management experience at your fingertips? Opportune LLP, a leading global energy business advisory firm, has the capabilities needed to overcome your minerals and royalties team's technical, operational, and financial challenges. To learn more, search Opportune's podcast E2B Energy to Business on Apple and Spotify Podcasts where Opportune examines emerging financial and technology trends and provides a broad perspective on ways to stay ahead, create opportunities, and execute market strategies. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. Over the past 20 years, Riverbend Energy Group has been the definitive leader in the non-op and mineral space, where they are actively acquiring minerals in the Delaware Basin, Midland Basin, the Williston, and the Eagleford. Following their $1.8 billion sale of their non-op platform in 2022, they are also back actively acquiring non-op interests in the Delaware Basin, Midland Basin, and Wilson. If you have minerals or non-op working interests in these areas that you would like to sell, then please visit www.riverbendenergygroup.com for more information. So something else we talked on, you know, $5 trillion pumped into the economy. A lot of money was printed. We're able to do that as, as the U.S. global power. People take our debt. There's, you know, me not understanding how everything fits together. It's a little concerning when you see the potential threat to the petrodollar. You know, a lot of realignment globally with, with Russia and China and OPEC and, and BRICS. There's been rumors of a, a petro yuan, right? in the Middle East trading. China did a multi-billion dollar JV with Saudi Aramco in March of this year for two refinery deals. Basically, oil will be sold in a petro to China from, from the Middle East. And then you have, obviously, uh, Russia has a strong alliance and wants to do all their trade in the yuan. If you're holding all the debt and everyone values the debt, 
okay, now as soon as it becomes less valuable, puts the U.S. in a precarious position, no? I mean, your comments on that, and again, let's dial it back to impact on oil and gas. Well, the, the first and foremost thing to remember is that the U.S. dollar and crude oil prices do have a, a very strong correlation. So there's, they're generally polar opposite. Dollar rises, oil goes down, dollar goes down, oil goes up. There are periods of times where they're crossing over or those lines are, me- are, are meshed together. We're currently in that period where they're meshed together. They're not truly polar opposite in direction based on response. So the dollar rose to 115, right? Oil prices got dicey around 66, $67 a barrel. Uh, dollars at 102 and some change today. Oil prices are down to $70.94. So there is that polar opposite pool. But the reality of it is the dollar is not a strong dollar. The dollar just has to be the strongest of fiat currencies because we're the most reliable country that pays our debt. I'm not worried about the, the petrodollar changing. And here's why. It's like needing to borrow money. I need $100,000 because I, I want to buy a house. And so I go to the bank. They say no. I go to the next person. They say no. I go to the traditional conventional lenders. They say no. Then I go around the corner. I talk to this guy in the back. Guy. He says, yeah, yeah, we're going to give you 100000 but we need your birth certificates for your kids, all your money. And you got to know we're going to kill you if you don't pay us back. Well, that's what's happening to Brazil and all these other countries who are now agreeing to trade in the yuan, agreeing to do business with Russia and the ruble. They're all saying we're only doing business there because as individual countries, they're broke. They're dead broke. They're third world countries. They're starving to death. Their economies suck. The reason why you have a southern border with five million people a month coming across because everybody in the world says there's only one place to go for economic success, and that's the U.S., And so what we have is we have two gangsters out there in China and Russia being played in between OPEC and Saudi Arabia. It's all, in my view, it's all a conspiracy. They're all working together. Why? Everybody wants the U.S. economy to fail. The problem they have is you can't beat us. You're going to wound us and we've got some bad political guidance right now, but you're not going to beat us because why? At the end of the day, it's all about buying the dollar. And the reason why the dollar has been so strong is everybody said the dollar is the best fiat currency of all the currencies in the world, better than our own. And because the U.S. is such a strong global economic powerhouse, everybody has to have dollars to be able to do business with the U.S. So if you want to go kill the chicken laying all the eggs, which is the U.S. economy, they're all their economies die as well. So this is nothing more than the fact we have bad leadership in the White House. If we had a strong leader in the White House, the dollar would not be as strong. It doesn't help us to be strong. But what would happen is we'd have better geopolitical presence in the world. And Brazil and these other countries wouldn't be thinking about the UN. They wouldn't be asking for China support. But we have so let our allies down and our trading partners down. They decided, well, if you're not going to back us, we got to survive. We're going to go to the next possible uh, party that's going to give us cash. They're going to the mafia in the back alley because they say that's a better trading part, right? That's not that's not a, a, a likely cycle. If you look at what China did two years ago in, in the nickel market, where they one of the biggest traders bet against the nickel market and he lost like $20 billion and China didn't like the outcome. So all these traders made tons of money by shorting the nickel market. And instead of letting the market play out, they decided to save their trader in China. They did they completely wiped out those trades for three or four days, about $20 billion in successful trades by the traders who shorted that market. So anybody with half a brain would look at China and say, you can never invest with China because China will never play by the rules. And it's always about China, regardless of the ethics or the integrity. Now Russia's over there with an illegal war, killing people by the minute. You think I'm going to go borrow money from them? So you've got two big powerhouses trying to change the globe. Unless everybody in the world wants to be a communist, unless everybody in the world wants to be put to concentration camps or out in, in, in penal colonies out in the middle of Siberia, the dollar is the strongest dollar because we're the strongest country and the strongest place of freedom in the world. Now let's talk about crude oil. 
How does that affect investors? Investors have been trained like whip dogs the last 20 years to think about day trading and how much money can I make today? I mean, most investors are like, hey, I opened up uh, this morning. I bought some shares of stock at 830 this morning. Whew, I was in it five minutes. I got out at 835. That was a long hold. They've been retrained like dogs to think about where they're going to get money today. When I started the business in 1985, Tim, they were like, if this investment doesn't have a 10-year horizon, I'm not interested. So it was long-term thinking in the 80s. Today, it's about milliseconds of how long they're in the market. That's now unwinding. What I'm seeing with my, my partners is they're sick of these masterminds. They're sick of these guys who say they're experts across all bases. They're sick of their financial planners who are driven only by assets under management or fees. What they're saying is, what can I own that's going to get me past the next decade to two decades that is going to be like Peter Lynch said with Merrill Lynch, I mean, with the fidelity. If you can't draw with a crayon, I don't want it. So it's great about crypto and it's great about all these tech stocks, but hell, I can't draw it. I don't understand it. It changes the new the new software, the new design, the new this, the new that. It, it makes other stuff obsolete overnight. You know, it's not been obsolete since I've been alive. Barrel of oil. You can complain about the economy. You can complain about climate unless you're butt naked on a dirt road using sign language. You're using a barrel of oil. Nothing else you can touch doesn't have fossil fuels involved. So as long as I'm investing in that fundamental cure-all, which is Cheap energy drives a strong economy, and we're not going to have cheap energy because this administration has derailed the supply side. So unfortunately, the next four to seven years, we're going to have high energy prices. Our economy is going to suck wind like it did in the 70s. Inflation is going to be raging inflation. It's basically going to be raging stagflation. We're going to have shitty growth, no growth, with high energy prices. I will tell anybody raising money in the energy space, and this is real important. I'm going to give you the secret sauce. I've said this for 30 years. There is a huge disparity between the energy business and high net worth investors. Forget the institutional private equity. That's nonsense. Okay. If you truly want to access high net worth investors, you must give them what you would expect. Transparency, clarity, fair trades. Don't treat them like they're stupid. Let them be involved as a partner, not an investor. And stop thinking you're arrogant, like you control all these barrels and all these minerals and all this work and because quite frankly, they don't understand it. They don't get it. They don't care. What they want to know is, can you do the job? Can I trust you? Are you fair? Are you somebody that's going to be here 10 or 20 years? These investors don't want to hear about you rolling up going to a public. They don't want to hear about rolling up going to private equity because they always get the short end of the stick. They always get run over. And they always get left out of the true payday. And all I see coming out of private equity and public offerings and all this nonsense is, they take 90% of the meat. They think everybody out here is a bunch of pathetic fools, and that's how they treat them. The reason they flock to my company is I treat them as if I was on the other side of the table. What do I want? I want a fair deal with a company plans on being in this the next 20 years. I'm in that 10, 20-year mentality like the 1980s. I could care less what it does in the next 12 to 24 months. And truly, energy is a decade investment. I mean, there's minerals being developed today. They thought were dry in the 1950s in the Permian and Oklahoma and everywhere else. They thought were completed and gone are now some of the most premium acreage that you can possibly buy in any of the basins. And so I'm not saying you got to wait 70 years. I'm just saying we are dealing with dinosaurs. A hundred million years ago, they died in that spot. I can wait two or three years. We haven't talked about the stock market yet. <laughs> yeah. Let, let's talk about your views on public equities and Again, where your investors are putting their money and they're, you know, running. they're running, they're running, of course. So break they're, that. They're, they're running because a lot of the older investors have figured out they can't outrun an algorithm. They can't outrun computer trading. Mm. They can't outrun such large enterprise that controls so much stock. You know, if Warren Buffett decides to sell, he can kill a stock in a second, right? If the short sellers decide to pick on a stock, they can destroy its value, even though the value's there. 
And what a lot of these older investors have figured out is I don't have the bandwidth and access to platforms and data and algorithms to outsmart computers. So it's a market that I'm going to dabble in. But most of the investors I deal with have either exited fully or they're about 10% in the market just to give them something to do. They've lost faith in the stock market. So that's a real that's a real scary thing because the market is driven by, val- by volume and it's, it's driven by trading, right? Somebody's got to want to buy more stocks than you want to sell to create higher value, right? If you have a lot of the high net worth investors losing faith and confidence and pulling their money out, you're not getting that increase in activity, which you're seeing is a decrease in volume. In other words, I think what's been happening in the last year, everybody just waits till it bounces up just high enough to scrape some off the top and go somewhere else, just high enough to get out of that stock position. But if you notice, they're not reinvesting. Now, I'm not saying the stock market is not a great way to be wealthy. Let's give me Warren Buffett's no fool. I'm saying that today, by, by pure common sense, it is a stock market that I view at 33,000 on the Dow. It has about an 85% probability of going below 25,000 on the Dow by the end of next year, more so than it does going to 36,000 on the Dow, making me 10% of my money. So investors are all about risk reward. Why risk a, a really volatile stock market that keeps hitting its head on the top of the jar like a, a flea jumping up? And they're saying, I'd rather take those same dollars and put it in something that I think is more safer, lower risk, and I can I can keep it out of that public market mentality. And I think that's what most of the investors I'm dealing with, they're, they're coming out of the stock market. They're just staying in positions just long enough to peel it off and get the heck out of Dodge. I don't know. I think we have a big a big change in the, in the private high network investor market. So I was born in 1964, the last year of the baby boomers, right? So most of my clients are either 10 years younger than me, maybe 10 years older, somewhere in that range. Those that are in the baby boomer market, They've already made their money. They don't need new cars and girlfriends and houses. They own what they own. They got their investment. They're just they're keeping busy playing. But what I can tell you is happening is there is a massive change in their mentality. They're tired. They're tired of the scams and the bad deals and the cycles. So now what they're saying is, I just want to invest in things that I know I can count on. An apartment complex. I can drive by it. I can see the building. I know the tenants are there. I know what part of town it's in. I, I like it. When you think about the stock market, so much of the stock market now is driven by things they can't even put their head around. You know, you're getting software and platforms and this and AI. They're like, I don't get it. Well, those that group, that baby boomer group has a enormous amount of net worth that sooner or later gets passed on to their, their heirs, but not today. You start putting that change in mentality to 5, 10, 20 year thinking, it changes a lot of markets, not just the stock market. So I think it has to do with where they bank. I think it has a lot to do with the type of assets they buy and the banking products they, they buy. I think it has a whole lot to do with whether they're going to be investing in startups or not. I think a lot of startups are going to have a hard time finding capital unless they can find these, these younger investors that want to participate because there's just a change. They're, they're all like me. They're realizing we're older. We can't remake it back. We're, we're tired. We're, we're less risky. And we're just kind of assuming, hey, life is good. Why do we want to go beat our head against a rock? And that, I think that's why my business has exploded. They just like the idea, hey, I just get a check every month. I don't have to think about anything. There's no bad phone calls on Monday. Man, what a nice investment, you know? It's, it's, it's a great detraction. You know, you bring up baby boomers. It is almost like you were reading my mind because I was just about to, to talk about the baby boomer generation. When you look at, I look at minerals and in, in the baseball innings analogy and kind of where we're at. The whole reason I've gone all in and focus my career on minerals today is I think we're in the earlier innings. And I think the later innings that are to follow in terms of opportunities that look a lot different than they did earlier on, which was 
purely rolling up your sleeves, going out, calling folks, aggregating. It's getting a little more competitive yep. and challenging, but there's different ways to, to make money and create value for your stakeholders. Going forward, the baby boomers are going to start passing away and there's going to be a, a huge wealth transfer. Yep. Within that wealth transfer is going to be mineral states Correct. that are then passed down and cut up 12 ways, 20 yep. ways, five ways, whatever it is. Fragmentation is the opportunity set, right? For capital to then pull about back up into funds, portfolios, et cetera. You know, I think just from kind of getting the nuts and bolts of building the asset you said is so attractive for your investors, there's an interesting opportunity ahead from that perspective, right? And then, you know, what happens with the, the people controlling this wealth, the behaviors and where they put the money is, you know, kind of what you're talking to. So I think there's multiple dynamics that are going to make the next decade really interesting. Yeah, I, I think one key thing is with minerals is that one, there probably is only really a finite group of buyers that really understand the mineral market. There's all kinds of flippers and people jumping in and out and all that kind of nonsense. But when I think about the mineral market, it is a very sophisticated business. It's, it's not just simply, I mean, you can go into a truck stop in Oklahoma and on the bulletin board on the way to the men's room, it says minerals will sell hundred bucks. You can buy mineral anywhere you want. It's whether it has any value or will create cash flow. So there's a very finite group of people that understand the mineral market. And that group is limited by access to minerals in bulk quantity. It's also access to capital, the cost of capital, blah, blah, blah. I think the baby boomers and this fragmentation you're talking about is going to be enormous because uh, what I call never sellers today, or we can call a never seller today, that's true, but I got eight grandkids. So let's say I die in 15 years from now and I give my grandkids a whole bunch of minerals. And they may go, man, we love grandpa Troy. He's a great guy, but I'll take that million dollars. I want to buy a house on the beach in Florida. So I don't want to wait a thousand dollars a month in royalty checks. I'll sell it all today. So we and you and I all know that, that the mineral market is probably well over a trillion dollar market because of the basins and how big they are. And that market is only going to grow and expand because once I, when I was a kid, I would walk home from my elementary school and I'd pass by this beautiful 20 acre naval orange grove. And as a kid, I wasn't that tall. I mean, I was tall, but not that tall. And I'd be walking home and I'd see these beautiful fat naval oranges just hanging off that tree about to drop. And I'd be like, my sister and I'd be like, okay, it's competition. You can find the biggest, fattest, juiciest naval orange on the way home. And that's low hanging fruit. Visually, you can see that. The problem is the tree actually had enormous amounts of navel oranges in that tree, but I was focused on the low-hanging fruit because I didn't have a ladder and I didn't have the tools to get higher and I wasn't, I wasn't mature enough to know how to go get the better fruit, right? That's the mineral market. Really, since the shale play took off, all that's happened the last 10 years, this has pretty much been, as I say, follow the rigs. Any idiot can see a rig, go buy some ducks, go buy some permits, and you can do it. The real skill is, found, is finding the tools to get that ladder to climb that tree and get those, those other oranges. The real skill the next 20 years is those who actually understand the working interest expiration side, why those operators drill what they do, where they're moving, what's causing them to switch from one location to the other. That's the fine art of the surgical process of mineral acquisitions that'll take place, I think, for here in the next 20 years. It's still a massive, massive trillion dollar market. So for investors, this is one thing that really appeals to my high net worth investors. They get tired of buying an apartment complex and they go, well, what's the next one? Oh, we don't have it bought yet. Or Atlanta's hot today, but Dallas is hot tomorrow. Well, that sucks because the risk is the same. It's market risk. It's pricing risk. It's income risk. It's a sponsor. Who's the sponsor? Who's the manager, right? But with minerals, 
if you can demonstrate this is just this is going to be a cornerstone or foundation of your entire net worth you're going to keep adding minerals every year because some years are better than others but if you keep adding those minerals year after year this is something you can do for the rest of your life even your heirs can keep buying minerals because hell i don't see the next 50 years we're going to run out of opportunity in minerals it may cost more being different areas so my high net worth investors are so tired of deals that it's called they're deal exhausted. Here's the next deal. Here's the next deal. They're, they're sick of it. Show me a way to focus on something that works that I can just keep repeating again and again and again and again. I don't even know if you know it or not. Three years ago, I think we did $20 million in minerals. Then in 2021, we did $80 million in minerals. Last year, we did a quarter of a billion dollars in minerals. This year, we're probably going to do a half a billion dollars in minerals cash paid for. And our biggest problem today is we have no inventory. We'll have a $20 million grouping of minerals for our, our internal partners. It's gone in like two hours. And so because we've adhered to a very disciplined model, I'm not saying this is a sales pitch for Eckert. I'm saying the, the realization of what's happened to us is the capital is there. Again, finding money is easy. Finding great assets is difficult. So you got to be disciplined. You got to hold to your financial model. You can't move up and down with a rushing war. What you've got to do is be looking down the road, 5, 10, 15 years. What will be developed in 2027, not 2023, right? That's where you got to position yourself. And then you got to make those capital partners understand the dynamics of the asset class, which is it's not buying a stock and holding it for five minutes. It's not buying a deal and trading it in nine months. It's I'm buying this knowing that the value and income and maybe the asset value is going to be significantly more, but it's like a pecan grove. It takes five years to get your first fruit off the tree. That is, that is a whole re-education because these high net worth investors have been ruined since the dot-com days back in 1997, 1999. They could buy radio.com. It turned into a $4 billion no-income enterprise and sold out in five months. Everybody made 100 times their money. They were ruined because of dot-com, and it's not come back and made easier. So, it's a great market. Uh, minerals are here forever. And I think that anybody that has any interest in truly building a legacy asset has to be in the oil and gas space, either working interest, production, or minerals, because it's only going to get more valuable over time, period, end of story. Well, Troy, super fun conversation. I knew it was going to be one. So yeah. thanks for coming on. I think in summer here, right, there's a lot of headwinds coming. There's a recession coming. It's going to be tough for a lot of folks, but you're going back and you're being a history student. You're saying in the 70s, energy was the driver of a lot of the challenges, inflation, et cetera. Hold energy direct. Minerals is a good place to start and you will benefit from that. And you can really counter a lot of the, the other challenges that are going to be faced. And then ultimately we'll, we'll come out of the recession and have another bull run. But until then, that's kind of where we're at. So I think very well said. Thanks again for being candid. I'm, I'm going to leave you with this thought. I know you're younger than me, but I'll leave you a simple thought. A seesaw is a board balanced in the middle with two different weighted sides, right? If you always have a awareness of the balance in your portfolio like that seesaw, you always win. Today, we are sitting at the bottom in energy, regulations, anti-capital, climate freaks, everything. We're at the bottom. And on this side is consumption and demand. And it's rising. It's as high as it can get. So all I'm saying to anybody listening to your podcast, which, by the way, I love the way you manage this mineral business because you're bringing to light what most people don't get. What we're basically saying is if you can put minerals or oil and gas or fossils directly in your portfolio, not in stocks, because that's, that's public equity. What you're doing is you're balancing your portfolio 
with what's going to cause inflation, what's going to be the runner for the next three to five years, what you've done is you've created that balanced portfolio by virtue of asset class management. That's really what you're doing. You're managing that asset class. Thanks for having me as always, you know, half a cup of coffee. I'm always jacked up, ready to go. This is natural, no drugs, no, no Red Bull, <laughs> I just love life. But call me anytime. I really appreciate uh, being on the show and I appreciate the, uh, the time. No, thanks again, Troy. Appreciate it. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed. The Minerals and Royalties podcast is meant for informational purposes only. Tim Powell and the Minerals and Royalties Authority are not promoting any specific securities or investments, nor are they providing any type of investment advice. If you enjoyed the episode, then I encourage you to tune in more and also check out the Minerals and Royalties Authority YouTube channel. Thanks and see you next time.